The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. Well, it's time to Ben Jarofsky show as I speak. It's Friday, September 10th, 2021. This is the headline in today's New York Times. I just randomly picked this newspaper, folks, just to give you an idea of what's going on in the world. It's about to uh, have a conversation that has absolutely nothing to do with what I'm about to read. Big business must require COVID shots, Biden says. Yeah, Joe Biden said, big business, come on. Make those workers get their shots so we can deal with COVID. Good luck with that, uh, President Biden. Uh, but we're not, repeat not, going to be discussing COVID. Oh, we're not going to be talking about anti-vaxxers. We're not going to be talking about the insane notion that somehow or other liberty is enshrined by uh, poisoning other people with your disease. No, we're not going to be talking about any of that. Instead, well, I'm not going to tell you what we're going to talk about. Instead, I'm going to turn to my distinguished guest and ask him to introduce himself, and then we shall begin. Distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Well, uh, my name is Adam Karsten. I'm a historian, uh, filmmaker, film worker, uh, who's here to talk about my new uh, documentary about Mr. Kelly. That I was yes. uh, happy to be working with a lot of other great people on. Uh, and uh, this guy knows his stuff, Adam Karsten, ladies and gentlemen. Let me just tell you this. Uh, I don't know how old he is. I do not ask guests how old they are. He looks like he's about 19. And then by chance, before the interview I'll began, take it. I, <laughs> I'll take it. Well, you look very young, man. Anyway, yeah, I, I just, you, thank you. I by chance mentioned Pete Best. And I did, never thought in a million years uh, that Adam would know who he was. And then he lifted up a, he not only knew who he was, former driver of the Beatles, <laughs> he lifted up a coffee cup that said, help. He's got a Beatles coffee cup, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> Got to give him a lot of credit. Uh, Mr. Kelly's is, well, you know what? I, um, I'm i not going to tell say what Mr. Kelly's is. Adam, I'm going to allow you to talk about this uh, new movie that's uh, coming out, documentary about Mr. Kelly's, legendary Mr. Kelly's. I will say this. Uh, I got a copy of it. Uh, the producer was so kind as to send me a copy, and I actually did my homework and watched it. So uh, <laughs> once I could talk about something that I've actually watched or read, in many cases, they don't get it to me time. But Adam, why don't you tell folks what Mr. Kelly's was? We'll start with there. Yeah, well, Mr. Kelly's was um, 
you know, I, I guess for lack of a better term, maybe like the go-to uh, nightlife spot in Chicago for, you know, we, we kind of use the, uh, you know, the timeline of from World War II, the end of World War II to Watergate. I mean, it was just like a hot spot. You know, it was originally just a really, you know, beloved and popular restaurant that's in the um, early to mid 50s started to slowly introduce music. And then a new kind of burgeoning, um, you know, stand-up comedy movement that was coming out. And, you know, from there, from, you know, let's say like the early mid-50s through 75, I mean, we're talking some of the biggest acts in the country when they played Chicago or when they really, you know, performed in a major nightclub for the first time. Uh, it was at Mr. Kelly's. And, and you know, and also the other two clubs. Um, I should step back and say that Mr. Kelly's was owned by the Marienthal Brothers, Oscar and George, and you know, on top of Mr. Kelly's, they also owned the London House, which was like the piano uh, jazz, you know, club in Chicago, and had all kinds of greats like Oscar Peterson and you know uh, Errol Garner, but uh, Herbie Hancock even. But then you know they had a third club called the Happy Medium even um, that was also on Rush Street, and uh, that was you know. Tons of great plays. There was lots of live music there. They had some clubs in the lower level. And, you know, um, some of the members of Chicago, some of their early gigs and their, you know, earlier bands before Chicago were playing in, in uh, the Happy Medium's basement. So, I mean, all three of these clubs were really kind of not only huge in Chicago, but kind of huge as far as, you know, vaulting talent forward, you know. That would become nationwide, you know, international stars. So, you know, that's kind of what the project's been about is talking about these clubs and all the great people who played there and um, kind of and also like how sadly, you know, a venue like this is forgotten, even though it's so iconic and important. It's, you know, how do you preserve uh, a place versus, you know, an actual work of art? Like it's hard to remember uh, it uh, unless you were actually there. So that was one of the reasons, you know, it was exciting to really work on this is to get the word out on these clubs and how important they were and, um, you know, forward thinking they were in a lot of ways. Uh, before I go further, take the deep dive, uh, folks want to watch this documentary. How can they watch it? It's, uh, it's not eluding me at the moment uh, when it's going to air. Yeah. 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 So well, it's you know, we're kind of taking the more modern model that I think a lot of people have, uh, <laughs> adopted, especially, you know, post COVID. Uh, we're going to be doing a kind of hybrid model where it's initially going to be in select theaters uh, here in Chicago. You're going to be able to catch it uh, starting September 17th. So um, a week from today when we're recording this. And um, so, you know, that's going to be there. And then there will be some screenings in Los Angeles, which are still, um, I think will be posted soon and maybe a few other spots, but, you know, just as important if people don't, you know, feel like, you know, heading out, uh, which, you know, I get, um, in some cases, but if, if you don't want to head out or it's not going to be playing in your city, uh, it will be on video on demand, uh, which should be October 12th. So, you know, it's going to be nice where you can go have that theatrical experience if you can. Um, but also, you know, hold tight. It's going to be able, you know, you're going to be able to rent or buy it very soon too in October. All right. I just want to let you know that I am going to see movies uh, this weekend. I will see Candyman. That has absolutely nothing to do with anything we're talking about. Just wanted <laughs> to say that. I'm really looking forward to seeing Candyman. I know you probably have strong opinions about Candyman, but we're going to hold that 
and we're going to move back to Mr. We can Collins. hold it. Yeah. We can hold it. We'll get back to Candyman. I, <laughs> I, I bet you anything, ladies and gentlemen, this dude knows the whole freaking history of Candyman, where it was filmed, the first one, uh, <laughs> et cetera, and so forth. I, I just know this because this guy is a, uh, a historical junkie when it comes to Chicago history. All right, Adam. So when you were going on that opening riff about Mr. Kelly's, again, it's a nightclub in the Rush Street area. If you're not from Chicago, that's the area just north of downtown Chicago, just north of what they call the Loop. And um, so if uh, when you were going on that riff and talking about Mr. Kelly's and the London House, I was thinking about how Chicago destroys its past. Now, I'm not, I don't know. I'm not comparing it to any other cities, which are any better or worse. All you little Chicago lovers out there, go, boom. In San Francisco, they do the same thing. I'm Just hold your defense of Chicago. Got these Chicago lovers. If you say anything critical about Chicago, Adam, they immediately get defensive and start talking about what they do in Milwaukee. Nobody cares about Milwaukee. <laughs> but Chicago is constantly destroying its past, particularly we won't go put the in black neighborhoods. They just pave all it's all about the urban renewal, just move these people out of the city. But in this particular area, this Rush Street area, it's a very hot, pricey area right now. And it was a little yeah. funkier back in the day in the fifties and the sixties. And so a club like Mr. Kelly's could thrive there. And now it's so funny. We admire and we revere Mr. Kelly's and uh, many of us, particularly baby boomers, just really idolize some of the people who performed at Mr. Kelly's, like Lenny Bruce was on the stage at Mr. Kelly's. But the powers that be in the city of Chicago, they can't wait to destroy the Mr. Kelly's of the world, pave it over like it never existed, and then maybe kick a nickel to some guy who's making a documentary talking about Mr. Kelly's. That's my position opinion about these things uh adam as a historian what's your thoughts um you know well first of all in, in a lot of ways we're lucky because uh well i don't know it's it's kind of hard to be like how do you say what was saved for mr kelly's because there was two major fires during its during its existence so it's like which is a very chicago thing right um so you know where do you start and begin with what's authentic but you know we're it's it's cool to see, though, that, um, you know, at least the, you know, um, part of the building still saved today because it's Gibson's Steakhouse, um, you know, on Rush Street. Um, and, you know, and London House is the London Guarantee building it was located in. And, of course, you know, that's still there and that's a hotel and it's rebranded. But, yeah, kind of like you're saying, the happy medium, um, that that one's really sad because, you know, arguably that kind of had one of the most unique and... Um, you know, I guess most um, customized style of all the clubs, because I, I believe the um, the Marienthal brothers um, had that designed by Bertram Goldberg, you know, who, who built, uh, who designed the Marina Towers, you know, big Chicago architect. So they actually said, hey, you know, so it was actually like at the, this unique, very 60s looking building, which is now gone. And uh, it was on Rush Street. And now it's a, I think it's a Tesla dealership. So that's actually of the three clubs, <laughs> the biggest crime, because you know, major architect, um, very unique of its time, you know, um, very cool kind of sixties looking, you know, signage and everything, but yeah, long gone. And, um, you know, I mean, Rush Street's weird like that though. It's kind of like a hodgepodge of, you know, the built, this building's still there, that one's gone. And, you know, it's, it's, it's weird sometimes looking at the photos, how much it has changed and how much it stayed the same from, you know, certain angles. All right, let's talk a little bit about the the Marenthal brothers who ran the club. Uh, Oscar and George Marenthal, until I watched the documentary, I, I was not aware of them. So I'm, I assume many of my listeners are the same. 
Uh, what was your background? Well, you know, it's interesting. It's, um, you know, in a lot of ways, kind of their careers before um, becoming these nightclub, uh, you know, entrepreneurs and, you know, really, I guess, just, you know, giants in Chicago nightlife. Um, you know, a lot of what they did before did help them in their careers. Um, they're both from the South side and they're, you know, um, you know, there's kind of a strain of like uh, Jewish entrepreneurship from the South side in this era, like a lot of really successful, you know, um, you know, kind of hard fought battles, you know, like to build an empire or a nice business of yourself. So they kind of fall into like that generation of, of, um, you know, people who really just pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. And, you know, George, for instance, was in the military. Um, and we actually have an accommodation he got from, the, I, I believe, the army, if I'm not mistaken, because he used to manage um, clubs for, you know, generals and, um, you know, the higher ups in the, in the military. So he had that service and he sold coffee uh, to restaurants at one time. And, you know, so he, he kind of, he knew that terrain. And then his brother, on the other hand, was a great salesman. Uh, and he had also been working in restaurants and, you know, he didn't serve, but he was, you know, in Chicago working restaurants. And, um, you know, I mean, they, they just were both seasoned in the industry before they opened it. And it's, uh, you know, I think World War II also plays a big part in it because, they, you know, I think some people forget there were, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, rationed items that were, you know, dur during World War II. And one of those things sometimes was a good cut of beef. So they really helped. And we put it in the film, you know, they helped build their empire on steak because people coming home, they're like, man, we want a juicy steak. And so, you know, <laughs> make a make a date with a steak tonight was their logo for, you know, for years. But they knew how to promote, you know, just from the beginning. They started with food and then moved to entertainment, I think, is, you know, what to take away from that. And uh, I get a kick out of the fact that uh, George and Oscar Marenthal, the gentleman who started uh, Mr. Kelly's and ran Mr. Kelly's, are Jewish, and uh, they named it Mr. Kelly's. Yeah. And I just yeah. smile uh, at him <laughs> because that says so much about uh, attitudes towards Jews and Irish in the city of Chicago. The prevailing attitude in the city of Chicago, this is me talking, not Adam, uh, in the <laughs> 40s and 50s to, uh, regarding Jewish peoples. It's okay. You can come here, run a business, make some money, but you're not up front. Okay, you're in the back rooms, but Irish, it's like judges with Irish names get all these votes. It's like something about Irish in the city of Chicago. We'll call it Kelly's. Two Jewish guys are. Can you imagine if they call it Cohen's? It wouldn't last like a week. <laughs> anyway, that's my editorial side. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know there's a there's a reason, a specific a reason for it being called Kelly. Take it away. Well, it's you know it's interesting. Um, for for um, I guess you know. First of all, you're right, because it, there's actually, um, it's funny because Erwin uh, R. Corey appeared on Sven Gulli in the early 70s. The original Sven Gulli is uh, a uh, bishop, you know, uh, the Screaming Yellow Theater. And he had a great bit on there. He's like, uh, where he says to the effect of, they call it Mr. Kelly's, but it's owned by some Jewish guys, you know, <laughs> like, that's just to confuse the Goyim. You know, he does, there's, you could actually look that up on YouTube. It's actually like a really funny <laughs> bit he does, but I did not know that. Yeah. I, swear, I did not know that. Is it, I'll well, send it, I'll send it to you. Yeah. It's on YouTube. But, uh, but you know, a lot of people have asked that and, you know, we don't have a hard con confirmed story if that was the case or not, or what it was, or, you know, we don't have like any oral histories from the brothers themselves. Um, but we can confirm 
from, uh, it seems at least multiple sources have claimed they named it after a man named Pat Kelly, who they hired as a manager early on and then fired promptly. <laughs> and, you know, so I think it might have also been one of those things of, well, we named it Mr. Kelly's. Uh, are we going to get rid of the signs and, you know, all the plates we made and everything? So, uh, you know, we don't know the exact rationale, but we do know who, who it was named after. And, you know, he didn't stay there very long. Uh, the you know the actual Mr. Kelly. <laughs> By the way, Chicago baseball fans will tell you that the other Pat Kelly was an outfielder for the Chicago White Sox in the 1970s. Good call. A little known fact that only a geek like me would know. <laughs> um, the the, uh, the documentary opens. I was stunned. I got to tell you this, uh, Adam. It opens with Barbara Streisand, and I I couldn't believe that you guys got Barbara Streisand to be in a documentary, but. Uh, Chicago nightclub. Barbara Streisand, born and raised in New York, now of course lives in L.A. She, the only connection she has to the city of Chicago is that she performed here from time to time, and it happened to be the location where they took the picture of her that's uh, on the cover of the famous uh, People, the album People, where she sings People. But it's it's like it's a shot of of Barbara on a beach, so it could be anywhere. I didn't even know. I didn't even know until I saw your movie that right. it was Lake Michigan. Um, so how in the world did you talk Barbara Streisand into giving, uh, an interview, uh, about a movie, about a nightclub in a city she, she never lived in and only drives through occasionally? Yeah, I know. I think we're still asking ourselves that, but you know, at the end of the day, <laughs> yeah. at the end of the day, I think it's the power of Mr. Kelly's though. You know what I mean? Like this place was really well loved, really well respected. Um, not only by you know, the people who saw shows there, but by the people who were performing in the shows. And, um, you know, she routinely had, you know, talked about Mr. Kelly's in her shows. I I think, especially when she was in Chicago, she always would have like a little monologue, uh, about Mr. Kelly's. And, you know, I know, um, the producer of the film, David, who is, you know, uh, the owner's son, uh, David Marienthal, he went to a concert and he was um, talking with her people. We kept going back and forth and we kept brainstorming and we kept, you know, so long story short, I think what ultimately sold it is I, uh, I, I was lucky enough uh, with David to find a, the original negatives of that photo shoot. And so I think that helped sweeten the pot and those, that's what you see in the film. Um, and then, you know, we, we all brainstormed, we all kept going back and forth. And then we said, well, how about she just, instead of, she wanted to do an interview, how about she just reads some version of her speech that she gives, you know, in Chicago. And that's kind of, you know, where that intro of the film started, essentially. Like, I'm not going to tell you it's verbatim, but that was the idea. And so she kind of, you know, and she ad-libbed a few fun lines for us and stuff. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, it really, <laughs> you can't top a, you know, a Streisand opening to a movie. Uh, oh no, it was, it, it, yeah. I and I get teased a lot by uh, many of my um, friends who would never, in a million years, admit that they like Barbara Streisand. Uh, and most of them swear up and down they don't. But I'm a huge Barbara Streisand fan. I've always have been. And uh, so I was like, oh my god, where's Barbara yeah. Babs? Uh, <laughs> all right, how did you? Um, in telling that tale, you talked about the. How did you, Adam, get these negatives? That of well, bar, pictures of Barbara Streisand on Lake Michigan back in 1961. 
Well, so one of the cool things about this project, and it's also just, you know, maybe some luck, is that, um, so David, the producer, uh, his father was George Marienthal, and his brother was Oscar, and Oscar's daughter um, was, um, first husband is the late, great Don Bronstein, who took um, those photos, and several other great photos. I mean, this guy was a genius, Don Bronstein. Um, he was a Playboy photographer. Um, you know, I don't quote me on this, but I want to say he was maybe even the first like full-time staff photographer, uh, photographer for Playboy. He did all the chess records. You know, like you know, like any of those real folk blues chess record album covers. Those are all. I mean, you know, at last, Etta James is him. So I mean, this guy's like a heavy hitter, real deal genius, and isn't talked about enough. But yeah, we uh, we were lucky enough to have a connection to the family because, again, you know, he's in he's part of the the Marienthal story, and you know, and it's uh, what's nice about this extended cut that's coming out, um, you know, the theatrical cut is that he's we give him a nice little shout out because he's you know he's an integral you know integral part of documenting these clubs. I mean, he really took some of the best images, and it just so happened. He was also part of the family who owned the club. So it's kind of like an interesting synergy there. But yeah, totally brilliant onto himself. Like could could honestly warrant his own documentary. Yeah, it sounds like he actually you've got me fascinated by him. And so, uh, uh, by the way, I love how you said, don't quote me. Uh, that's something I, you must have picked that up for me. I'm always saying, I, I think I know something, but I'm not quite <laughs> sure. I go, don't quote me. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, as a person who has their own podcast, yeah, I, 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 we get the corrections right away the moment we're wrong. So I get it. Like, <laughs> someone will go, uh, technically, Bronstein never worked uh, for Playboy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so you got Bronstein to supply you with those negatives. And when you had those negatives, that's what uh, fired up Barbara, Barbara Streisand to want to uh, take the extra step. Is that it? Yeah, well, you know, I think it's that, and I think it was coming to her with an easier ask of she doesn't have to be on camera, and you know, we don't have to invade her house or anything, and you know, it just it, we just made it easy and comfortable for her. But again, I really think you know we didn't have to. I don't make it sound like we had to push too hard because I really do think Mister just the name Mister Kelly's got us most of our interviews with you know, reasonable ease other than, you know, scheduling conflicts and stuff like that. Like we were able to, you know, with a couple day trips, sometimes in New York or LA book three, four people in a couple days, you know, because of Mr. Kelly's, like it really helped get us in. And we were also persistent, uh, our team. So <laughs> we, we weren't giving up too quick. So no, I mean, we were super lucky. We got, and we've got a lot of great people that unfortunately passed before this film came out too. So it's great to get, um, you know, their, you know, interviews and oral histories down uh, about their time at the club. Well, I, uh, you mentioned the uh, chess records, and of course, it was run by the Chess Brothers. Oh yeah. And uh, I was thinking about them when I was watching the documentary because there's some kind of parallels between uh, the Marenthal brothers and the Chess Brothers. Uh, mm -hmm. and the mini empires they build and, and the importance that, that they had outside of Chicago for different reasons. Uh, and so why don't similar you talk backgrounds. about that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, similar backgrounds. I think it goes to, you know, um, kind of, you know, first, second generation, you know, um, kind of immigrant families really, you know, hustling. And, you know, they're both from the South Side. And, 
You know, I, I think even more than that, though, if you look at, like, I think they're both part of a, of a Chicago renaissance that not enough people talk about. Like, I think, you know, it's, I think it's part of what we're saying in the film and part of what, like, a lot of my research and even other stuff is trying to say is that it gets, you know, and I don't, it's like, you don't want to be the Chicago person with the chip on your shoulder who wants to, you know, um, <laughs> throw shade at the coast as, as kids would say today. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things I think Chicago as a tastemaker is so overlooked because it's urban, but also in the middle of America and the crossroads of America, yada, yada. But at the same time, you know, you look at like the fifties, let's just say you get chess booming, such iconic, you know, uh, pop you know i use the term pop loosely because you know a lot of those blues records ended up you know um making a stir you know outside of even blues but you know you look at chess records you look at the uh, influence of playboy in the 50s you look at you know what the emergence of you know the early versions of you know second city and you know um all those folks you know nichols and may and everything and then you throw the marienthals in that mix i mean we're talking about you know, you know, it's, I mean, new music that's bursting onto the scene. You're talking about a new type of comedy and improv. You're talking about a new type of comedy and stand-up that's being featured at clubs like Mr. Kelly's. I mean, it was kind of ground zero uh, for just a lot of new and exciting entertainment. And that certainly went into the, you know, 60s and the 70s and beyond and everything. But like the 50s, it was really kind of a great cultural stew um in chicago and i'm sure i'm forgetting others you know uh i I could name but you know you look at that it's kind of spawned so much after you know the fact so i mean because let's just face it you know that's that's one of the things that a lot of the comedians and performers talk about is like these were like really safe enjoyable clubs to play because the audiences were receptive and it didn't feel like a make or break because it wasn't like, you know, 30 agents in New York or L.A. watching you. And like, you know what I mean? It was like a place you could like spread your wings and, um, you know, do great work because it was kind of outside of these major showbiz bubbles on the coast. And it's not to say Chicago wasn't a major hub in that way. But I mean, at the same time, it just wasn't as concentrated. And, you know, there was still kind of like just a different vibe in the city is is, is what a lot of the interviewers, at least, uh, you know, people we interviewed say at least. So, yeah. And, um, and that leads me to the Lenny Bruce question. Uh, the great comedian Lenny Bruce uh, played at Kelly's a lot and he's featured in the movie quite a bit. Uh, and they somehow or other, I, I've been singing the praise of, of, uh, Barbara Streisand, but Lily, I don't know how you got Lily Tomlin, but they got <laughs> Lily Tomlin, uh, as well. And she's, yeah, uh, I, I mean, Lily Tomlin's one of the greatest, uh, comedians and actresses of the seventies and eighties and what have you. So, uh, kudos to you guys for pulling that off. But she's talking about the significance of Lenny Bruce, and Lenny Bruce is very significant. And he, okay, he came in Mr. Kelly's, but let's not forget the fact he was busted in the city of Chicago. So I always find this interesting, Adam. Help me out with this. Here it is that a club like Mr. Kelly's, Lenny Bruce is welcome to the stage, but the powers that be that run the city of Chicago that are looking in the other way while Mr. Kelly's is operating uh, are busting Lenny Bruce because they feel he's violating obscenity laws. I mean, they went after him too. Yeah, uh, James Thompson, who later became the governor of the state of Illinois, was the prosecutor who wrote uh, the appeal. Like uh, again, I mean, they were went after Lenny Bruce, 
And I just, oh yeah, I, I think about this about Chicago, the contradictions in the city of Chicago. Help me out here, Adam. A club where they let Lenny Bruce in, and a few hipster types <laughs> from the fifties and sixties are like, oh yeah, man, I dig it. And meanwhile, they're all going out and vote for Mayor Daley, who's busting Lenny Bruce. Help me out with this, Adam. What does it say about Chicago? That's a lot to unpack. You're right. I mean, um, well, first of all, you know, from everything we could tell, he loved Mister Kelly's. And he's, you know, he didn't play there as much as some of his contemporaries, um, like Mort Saul or Shelley Berman. But when he was there, I mean, it definitely left an impact in him because, you know, he references Mr. Kelly's in like his uh, kind of comedic autobiography he wrote. And, um, you know, he does a great bit about Shelley Berman at Mr. Kelly's and name drops it. And Oscar Mar or Oscar Marienthal, he names drops and, you know, some of his recordings. But, you know, it's... Um, you know, it's I, I wonder, you know, what I should even say, what this is one of the best bits. We found an article. I wish we had the photo, but an article reported. Um, so the Marienthal brothers had a whole wall of people. They would get everybody to sign an autograph when they were done playing the club, which how cool is that? Now, mind you, we have maybe a, a dozen or two of those saved that, um, you know, but we're missing the Lenny Bruce one. And supposedly he signed it. Uh, and this is me paraphrasing. Um, you know, to the Marienthal brothers, the most, you know, liberal, uh, you know, bosses I ever worked for, you know, the easy, you know, and kind of like that they let him do what he wanted to do. Now, that being said, as much as he's praised the club and everything like that, I do wonder if what got him into, I mean, what got him into trouble, I think the misconceptions, the dirty words, it's not the dirty words, I feel, it's going after religion and in a heavily Catholic city like Chicago, I think that's where it got him in trouble. I mean, it was almost like, I, you know, there was almost like a Catholic Gestapo, you know, running Chicago. <laughs> like they would really take anybody down that even like remotely questioned the church. And this goes for film and other, you know, art forms. Like it was really kind of like frightening, but, uh, you know, and so and here's a fun thing. So he, yeah, he wasn't busted at Kelly's. He was busted at the gate of horn directly across the street from Mr. Kelly's or, you know, kitty corner. And, uh, do you know who he was busted with? And there's actually photographic proof of this. Uh, well, I know who was there the night he was busted is standing uh, behind him in the photograph where uh, the police are leading Lenny Bruce, uh, out of, uh, the club and he's handcuffed and standing there is the great, the legendary, the pride and joy of the upper West side of New York city. George Carlin. You got it. You got it. Yeah. And that's a wild photo to see. But yeah, no, I mean, yes. and Carlin, you know, he eventually played the club, but, you know, he even started at Cloister Inn down the street um, from Mr. Kelly's. But, you know, I think it goes to, if you're talking free speech, um, you know, Carlin was playing Mr. Kelly's in those early wild, you know, him transforming days. Like we, you know, like in the late sixties into the early seventies. And, you know, then he was arrested in Milwaukee, you know, I think it, we did the math. It was like a year, year and a half later after playing Mr. Kelly's. So, you know, there's a pretty good track record of people saying that they felt comfortable there and, you know, and that they, they, they could kind of say what they want. Um, there, I will say though, there was some kind of dispute we could never get to the bottom of between uh, Richard Pryor and George Marienthal where George uh, where Pryor no showed a new year's show. Um, I think 69 or 70, but we just don't know what's going. That's even, that's the closest and that's great. You know, that's just me trying to say, but I would say like 99% of the time it was like these 
performers loved playing here because they weren't going to get hassled. You know what I mean? They, I think that was the managerial style at Mr. Kelly's was like, well, you do your thing and we're going to sell tickets and cocktails and steaks and we're going we're gonna to work out just fine. You know, um, they, they saw them as professionals who kind of would stay in their own lane and do their own thing. Like they were not micromanagers. By the way, and I have to add one, uh, one more quirk. Uh, they let the uh, Richard Pryor on the stage and Lenny Bruce on the stage and uh, Mort Saul and what have you, uh, all these uh, cutting edge comics for their time. Uh, and uh, meanwhile, there would be mobsters there. And I'd learned this from the movie. I didn't know this until I saw your movie. Uh, Sam Giancana was like a regular, was a notorious mobster in the 60s and 70s millennials. And um, so let's talk about that a little bit. Uh like what did mobsters well appreciate you know that humor? yeah <laughs> well it's funny because it's like when you mention mr kelly's or you mention your you know nightclub in chicago from the mid-century everybody's like oh it was mob owned <laughs> it's like no it wasn't i mean there is like listen i mean you can never th- these things aren't kept on the book so it's you can never fully you know document it but Everybody we talked to, everything we looked at, not one thing points to the Marienthals. Because what it was, the Marienthals were smart, and they gradually grew their business. So they never had to take the mob's money. You know what I mean? They were successful, and they kept expanding on their own terms and in a very shrewd way. So that they were good there. Uh, but I will say the closest they ever came, um, uh, outside of guys showing up um, with their, you know, their their uh, ladies on you know at the table and everything because we, we've heard those stories of the gangsters show up with their girlfriends at the club but uh george marienthal actually testified before the senate uh you know they were having all the uh all the hearings in the 50s um you know about mob involvement in unions and different you know organizations and essentially what the story came out to be and uh it was robert kennedy was actually one of his the guys he was talking to which is cool But so George goes to Washington and testifies. And essentially what he says is, well, the involvement we had was in 48. um, I think his name was Tettlebaum. He used to be one of Al Capone's lawyers. And uh, I just think he was like, you know, a crooked fixer type in Chicago. And he shook, he he tried to shake down the Marienthals and they just came to some um, agreement said, well, listen, uh, if you, if London House, unionizes x amount of employees we'll leave you alone you can you can go so basically you know that's what it was about is they kind of forced uh some of the employees into a union like a you know like some kind of um you know restaurants or you know servers union or whatever it was and so yeah that's the most they came but you know what's great about it is i i dug through all the archives and uh one of the things i found was he apparently it went so smoothly he invited the senators to his club next time <laughs> they were in the city church. So, you know, it was like, and it was funny because his testimony was smooth where everybody else's was, you know, fighting back and forth with everybody. But yeah, no, I mean, certainly mobsters showed up, but so did everybody like celebrities left her, you know, we have accounts of, you know, Car- Johnny Carson would show up all the time. And, you know, I can play, you know, Jesse Jackson would show up, you know, like for like Billy Eckstein or, you know, folks like that, or, you know, Marlon Brando at the London house to see Mongo Santa Maria. I mean, you can just go down the line. If you were famous, you showed up, you know, that was, it was like, it was a hot spot to be if you were famous and you're in Chicago. And, you know, we have photos in the film of, you know, Bob Hope and, um, 
you know, uh, all kinds of famous people. You know, and there was actually a manager there. He lived in Chicago, but was a diehard Yankees fan. And so he would he would invite so like all the Yankees from like the fifties through the sixties, whenever he was there, you know, you could bet they were there. Like we have a photo of Mickey Mantle in the club and everything. So, you know, if you were famous and you were in Chicago, you'd stop by one of these clubs. It just was a thing. And my my girl Santa Maria, that dude is no joke. Folks, if you ever get a chance, that La Bama album yeah. is absolutely awesome. Um so Mr. Kelly's eventually closed, obviously. It's uh and Rush Street has changed dramatically uh, from what it was back in the day. Talk about uh, what brought the end of Mr. Kelly's. Well, you know, I think, um, you know, first of all, I think it's it's interesting to frame, and I uh, is that how many of these type of clubs, no matter how hot they were, didn't last as long as Mr. Kelly's or like London House. Because um, even the Gate of Horn came after and fizzled before, and, you know, just for instance. And, you know, that's it's interesting because that's the one I felt like before starting this project, people talk about Gator Horn more, right? But they'd lasted far less. Um, but it was, you know, I think it was kind of a mixture of there was, you know, depopulation in the city, you know, kind of a white flight that you're fighting against and, you know, everything that kind of came in the late 60s. Um, I think you're also fighting, though, like on top of suburbanization and everybody leaving the city is you get more competitive, bigger corporate venues in the suburbs. Like you look, the I don't know if you remember the Mill Run, which I think was in Niles, if I'm not mistaken. Just as someone who goes who went through the newspaper ads, someone who played these clubs in like 73, 74, 75, they were playing the Mill Run, you know, a, a year or two, three later. You know what I mean? Like they kind of siphoned off that entertainment. And, you know, and someone like Ramsey Lewis makes, you know, a great observation, especially from the jazz side. But he's like, the festivals got so lucrative, we couldn't take, you know, two, three, four weeks off to play one club. And that's how long these engagements were. Like, these weren't like a, over a weekend or like one or two nights. I mean, if Barbara Streisand or Ramsey Lewis or George Carlin or Richard Pryor, if these folks came to town, they were there for, I mean, anywhere from one to four weeks. Sometimes more in some instances, like there would be like really long engagements in the early days in some you know cases like Shelly Berman played there for like six weeks in his early career. So, I mean, you know, it's just, you know, the, the, the way the business was changed, there was just so many things in the city and in the nation that were changing. It was like, you know, and, and I also think they're fighting against, you know, they never really quite rebounded post counterculture, you know, not to say that there wasn't hot, important acts, you know, um, that Middler broke through there. Steve Martin, you know, was there. I mean, there was huge people, you know, Robert Klein, you know, in the late sixties, early seventies. So I don't want to say like they were, you know, they weren't relevant anymore, but I think every year after 67, 68, let's say, um, it just the the showbiz landscape just changed so dramatically, and it's like a less. And they tried to book some rock bands, like Blood, Sweat, and Tears played in the last year or two there, and stuff like that's just the one that comes to my mind. But I know they lost their shirts on that deal because you know rock bands were playing big, bigger venues and asking for more, and they weren't doing and get you know like so it was a mixture of really just the landscape changed so dramatically, and 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 I'd also say. Quite honestly, George Marienthal dying in the early 70s, um, he kind of had the magic touch. And his brother Oscar died uh, in 63. So, you know, with like, 
you know, no Marienthal brothers around, I don't think that, you know, that was as easy to run either. And, you know, it changed hands maybe two, uh, two times at least, uh, between, you know, 70 and 75. Um, so, you know, they fought a good fight and they really still were breaking great talent up until, you know, the end, you know, Freddie Prinze Jr. I could throw in there. He was the last person to record an album, um, at, at the club. So, you know, it's, they were relevant, but that the, the hill they were climbing just got steeper and steeper because the culture had, and the industry had just shifted. Like, like I think people take that for granted sometimes. Like if you just look from just the few five years after, like, let's say the summer of love, like, man, it was like a giant shift in another direction. Yeah, absolutely. That was a great riff by the way, Adam. Uh, Oh, good. uh, You're absolutely (laughs) correct. Uh, And uh, you know, it's funny because my generation, I'm too, it's so funny for me to say this, but I'm I'm too young to have remembered Mr. Kelly in his heydays. Uh, but the people who are on the stage at Mr. Kelly are people who were stars when I was a teenager in the 70s and I looked up to. Uh, yeah. So it's kind of cool, you know, like George Carlin and uh, uh, Richard Pryor, uh, Freddie Prince, you just mentioned him, Chico and the Man, I love that show. So, you know it kind of has like a, a hipness for me because I like these guys. And now I would try to, I, w- I know I would find myself trying to explain to millennials who Freddie Prince is, who jo- maybe they millennials know who George Carlin is. I mean, they, they should know George Carlin, but, and uh, Richard Pryor, shaky ground. I don't know how many millennials know Richard Pryor <laughs> uh, or Lily. Definitely. They won't know Lily Tomlin, you know, as talented as well, she is. If they know, they know, like, Lily Tomlin did the magic school bus in the 90s if you're a 90s kid. And George Carlin was Mr. Conductor on the shiny time station. So they, they know him for their kids' stuff, but right, not as, like, the landmark comics they were. Yeah, so what the, the, the overall point I'm making is that uh, these are, like, snapshots, generational snapshots. Yeah. And I, I don't want to be one of those baby boomers uh, that says, my generation is more relevant than yours, my comics are better than yours, you know. Uh, it's, it's just, they were significant to me because I was young and, uh, they were the stars and I looked up to them and uh, so I'm not hating on any, uh, you know, nineties or O's, uh, talent, but it is an important snapshot just in the development of cultural Chicago, I think. And so I appreciate the fact yeah. that you guys, uh, made this documentary. You got Bill Curtis. I don't know how you cut that deal. The Bill Curtis uh, voiceover. He's <laughs> <laughs> got some. I don't know who you guys know. But he was, yeah. We we were just persistent, <laughs> you know. And and again, Mr. Kelly's. He loved Mr. Kelly's, and he remembers that era. So, but I mean, yeah, you don't. You can't beat a voice like that. I mean, man. I mean, <laughs> uh, just like one of those iconic. Like I know, even if you don't know his name, the moment you play a clip of his voice, people are like him. Yes. Yes, oh, yeah. I know him. Bill Curtis. I can't. I'm not even going to try to do the invitation. But uh, it's like, no, yeah, no, yeah. Bill too hard. Too hard. Too hard. Uh, Adam, thanks so much uh, for taking the time to talk to me. And uh, I'm going to bring Adam back because, first of all, the dude knows so much history, ladies and gentlemen. This is just like this little conversation about Mr. Kelly's uh, is just a, like a, a thimbleful of water compared like the ocean in his <laughs> brain about Chicago. We had a phone conversation about uh, two or three weeks ago and we were just talking about movie theaters and neighborhoods and politicians and I, I don't know how you stock so much Are you saying I have water on my brain? Oh no, I didn't say that. We'll edit that <laughs> <Yeah>. out. Uh. 
<laughs> the old the old three stooges yeah yeah um but yeah no i um i'll come on anytime but you know just to let people know too before i forget um on top of having so, so the siskel center is going to be playing the movie starting september 17th um but also at the city winery we're going to have a live show with tim reed who's featured in the film the comedian uh people might know from wkrp in cincinnati and tons of other stuff but we're going to have a live show with some great local performers doing tributes to Mr. Kelly's performers at the City Winery uh, September 18th. So it's going to be a big weekend next weekend. And then, um, you know, like I said, VOD coming October 12th. So lots of exciting stuff. And, you know, thank you so much for having me on to, you know, kind of chat about this. Folks, watch me. I'm going to trip him up. I'm going to trip Adam up. He thinks he knows everything. Uh-oh. I'm going to trip him Let's up. Try. Let's try. Let's try. Let's do it. You mentioned Tim Reed. What Chicago-based comic was his partner for years? Uh, Tom Dreesen? Dang! <laughs> I'm telling you, folks, you can't beat him. I'm, I, <laughs> well, it helps that, he's, that they're both in the film, I guess. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I could have I made myself look smarter, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you wouldn't have known that if you didn't see it in the movie? Uh, hey, who who knows what I you know knew before I started this project? All but right. uh, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there's a book about them uh, by Ron Rappaport, which is a pretty good book. Yeah, uh, so, really look after. Yeah, that's a good one to check out. Yeah, it's a good book to check out. Gets in a lot about Chicago comedy and Tim and Tom. Anyway, uh, Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, and congratulations on making the movie. Uh, and a shout out to your uh, uh, partner in history, Elliot. I saw you in that movie, Elliot. Looking all distinguished. Elliot I know. Yes. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> yeah. No, he might have. Uh, he might have brought it down a peg or two, but you know, we had to. We had to make the sacrifice to have him. So he was a monster too. I was <laughs> We've been teasing each other back and forth. <laughs> he did. He's a folks. No, he's a great to Elliot Gorn. We did an interview with him talking about radical Chicago. So the guy really does know his stuff. Historian Elliot Gorn. All right. Thank you very much, Adam. And uh, I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.